Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for your word. I am concerned for the hearts and the minds of your people that we may or might approach your word, whether it's individually, personally, in a Bible study, during church service, or at any other time, that we might Approach your word without fear. I pray that you would produce in us fear, reverence for you. That we would understand the severity of what we're doing and the importance of the words that we read and the magnificence of the truth that is within them and that we would be humbled and broken and contrite in your presence, repentant of sin that defies your holiness and lifted up in power and encouragement by your spirit and by the grace of Christ to cover those very sins. Help us to find that balance, God, where we are terrified of your incomprehensible reality while also being overjoyed that you, a God of transcendent holiness, would make yourself known to us and would be with us and be a very real and present help in time of need through Christ. So we want to exalt Christ We want to honor your word. And we can't do that on our own, so we depend on your spirit. And we ask for your help. In Jesus' name, amen. So 1 Timothy 5. I think there's just a lot of information in 1 Timothy about elders. There's just a lot. And I think we're going to find out today why that is. Um, I think we've kind of covered some reasons why that is already. Uh, But Paul's going to kind of wrap up any conversation about elders uh, this week. And then next week is also about elders, but it's kind of a different different idea that is very applicable. Next week's verses, verses 24 to 25, are, are elder. The context is eldership, but... The application for the church is is very meaningful and real to every believer. Um, So we just have been kind of like, you know, back in chapter 3, it was a lot about eldership. Before that, in chapter 2, there's a lot about men and women's roles, which included men leading. So there's a lot of like male leadership teaching in 1 Timothy. And at some point, it kind of feels like maybe, can we move on from the whole like elders thing? And Paul's like, no, you can't. So... We're going to cover more, and I think what we'll discover today is why Paul talks so much about elders in this letter. Timothy's a pastor. Paul has spoken to the Ephesian elders already. 
just a few miles outside of Ephesus. He calls the elders to meet him in Acts chapter 20, and he speaks to the Ephesian elders, and then he sends Timothy to Ephesus, and Timothy's in Ephesus with these Ephesian elders, and he writes Timothy these First and Second Timothy, both these letters, to instruct him on how to direct, lead, guide, pastor, shepherd the church. And one of the most important things about that role is having men that God appoints with you and that the right kind of men are with you. And so we'll see today how, that, how important that is and what that means and, and how this particular role of eldership is so important that you have the right man and the right men in these roles. So in verses 17 through 20, that's about eldership, how elders are to be honored and elders are to be compensated and elders are to be protected against accusations and also how elders are supposed to be dealt with when they are in persistent sin. And what you saw, what we discovered there is the importance of the elder being protected as a man who's called by God to lead the church and shepherd the church and how the congregation is to be protected from men who are, lead the church but are in sin. And kind of walk through that. And then in verse 20, Paul shifts to how Timothy, as the pastor, is to navigate the nuances of those expectations for the elders and the congregation by being impartial, by not being prejudiced, by being wise and understanding the situation and discerning what's going on and making the appropriate actions for the sake of the congregation, for the sake of the elected elder, the called elder, and mostly and mainly for the glory of the gospel and for the purity and holiness of God's people so that Christ would be exalted in the church. In today's text, verses 22 through 23, Paul gives Timothy more rules regarding how he is to manage the inclusion of elders to protect the church by protecting the role of elder with qualified men. So, Paul has just given so many rules. We've seen so many rules uh, already, uh, rules on how to manage widows, rules on how to deal with elders, rules on how to deal with people who accuse elders, rules on how the elders are supposed to respond, rules about uh, what Timothy is supposed to do as the pastor and preacher, rules about deacons, rules about the qualifications for elders, rules about male and female roles in the church, who can do what, who can pray, who can't, who can teach, who can't, who has authority, who doesn't, uh, the importance of prayer in the church and who's doing those prayers. And then probably the biggest uh, topic that's covered in this letter is doctrine in general, the general idea that it is vital that Timothy teaches sound doctrine. So all these things are just Paul's teaching, but they all come with rules. Paul's constantly telling Timothy, do this, don't do that. Do this, don't do that. And so by the end of the letter, Timothy's probably reading this and going, it's a lot of rules, man. It's a lot of like instruction and guidelines to follow. And with more rules comes a temptation toward legalistic living. When I say legalistic living, I don't mean legalism. So legalism is a term we use, which is specifically this idea that 
this concept that you earn your salvation through good works, like legalistic, you know, the root word being legal, right? Referring to law. If I follow the law, if I follow the rules, if God tells me do this and do that, and I do this and do that, I'm good with God. So my relationship with God is dependent on whether I'm good or bad, obedient or disobedient. I follow his law or I don't follow his law. That's not the gospel. The gospel says you're not good. You need the grace of God through Jesus Christ by faith in him. And his perfect righteousness is credited to you. So that's what legalism is. And so we kind of in the church misuse the term legalism when we see people who care a lot about obedience. Somebody's very, you know, very heavy on the concept of obedience. We're like, oh, that person really thinks that obeying God is super important. They're legalistic. That's one, that's not true. Wanting to obey God is honoring to God. Um, and two, that's not really the meaning of legalistic. So we kind of have ter- started to use the word legalism kind of colloquially, kind of loosely and freely. And, and so I'm going to use that term in that way today. And with all these rules that Paul keeps giving Timothy, it's very, pro- very possible that Timothy starts to get a little legalistic in his thinking and a little legalistic in his living. And all of a sudden, you know, he's got to try to manage the whole church. I know what this feels like as a pastor. I know what it's like. You're trying to manage these group of people, trying to shepherd them, love them, teach them, care for them, pray for them, be with them, meet their needs. And, and, and it's, it's, it's time consuming. And then, and, then it's, and then it can become tiresome. And as it gets exhausting, you start to like lose the spirit-led nature of your ministry, and then what you start doing is you just start operating on rules. Because as the spirit doesn't lead, you're like, well, I, I might not be spirit-filled. I don't think we're thinking I'm not spirit-filled. But as we begin to live not spirit-filled, we go, well, I do know I'm supposed to do this, and I do know I'm not supposed to do this. So if I just do the right thing or don't, you know, don't do the wrong thing, then I'll be good. And I think that's what Paul is going to work against today because I think he understands that for Timothy that might be a temptation. Not a, not a temptation that Timothy is consciously aware of but would unconsciously or maybe subconsciously slip into. is kind of a legalistic thinking, abiding by the rules without the motivation to honor Jesus and glorify his gospel. Therefore, Paul also includes a command in this text that ensures that he is spirit-led. So to produce obedience to God's commands in the freedom of Christ instead of slavery to the law and the bondage of sin. And so uh, this is a very common debate in the church, very difficult idea to navigate. The importance of following God's rules and also the importance of living by God's grace. It is, we are commanded to obey God. But we are told that the gospel isn't predicated on our obedience, that the gospel is dependent on the grace of God in Jesus Christ that is applied to us. And that grace of God through the righteousness of Jesus is our credit. When you stand before God and he says, tell me about your life, you could literally just go, everything I did was garbage. And if he says, well, then why are you standing in front of me and you have one word You only need one word, and it's a name. You say, Jesus. That's it. His perfection, I get it. Not because I earned it, not because I'm good, because God, you gave me the gift of faith by your grace to believe in Christ. And because of that, that's why I'm standing here. 
No act of obedience you perform in your life, whether it's before you're saved, which can't be obedience to God because without faith, it's sin. That's Hebrews 11 and also Romans 14, 23. Anything that's done without faith is sin. Romans 14, 23, that which does not proceed from faith is sin. And Hebrews 11, 6 says that only faith pleases God. So um, any unbeliever, who does any act of anything is sin, regardless of how good it may be. So all the acts of what you might consider obedience before you're saved and any act of obedience you perform after you're saved earns you zero credit. Zero. You get no credit before God for anything you do. And the reason is, you might think, well, yeah, but once I'm saved... Then I obey. And once I'm obeying after I'm saved, how is that not credit? Because your obedience is what? The work of the Holy Spirit. Your obedience is the product of the righteousness of Christ in you. The only reason you perform righteousness in Christ today is because Christ himself and his righteousness was granted to you by God's grace. You're still not earning anything. All of your acts of righteousness and goodness and obedience in your Christian life is the work of God completely. We get this from Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10 that God created these good works for us to walk in. Before the foundation of the world, he planned those good works. We are walking in them. They're his works. Galatians 2.20 is not I who live but Christ who lives in me. In the life I live, I now live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Jesus is operating my holiness. So even my goodness today and in this, in this Christian life and my faithfulness to Christ is his faithfulness to his father. And it's just applied to me. We have nothing to offer. And so there's this constant struggle between this kind of grace living and legalistic living. We are saved by grace and then commanded to obey. And it can be very challenging to kind of figure out, well, where's that balance? And I think that... Finding that balance is part of the Christian life, is part of your sanctification. Determining in your life, and I think it takes years to kind of work your way through that. There's going to be times when you're a little more grace-oriented and obedience might not be as important as just fixated on God's grace to cover your sin. There might be times where you become a little more obedience-oriented and kind of forgetting about the grace of God and, and starting to veer towards a little bit of like a legalistic thinking where oh, I just have to please God with my obedience. And, trying, and, and you know, we go through those ebbs and flows of the Christian life and part of our sanctification is spending our life discovering that balance. Because we're commanded to obey God. So we have to obey him. And I think what happens here is Paul's writing to Timothy all of these commands, all these rules, all these instructions. And it's important that these instructions are followed. Why? For the purity and holiness and righteousness of the church. So this isn't just to make the church right with God. This is for the church to be the beautiful, blameless, without blemish bride of Christ. This is not for our salvation. This is for our sanctification. And so because of that, Paul gives Timothy a little bit of leeway at the end of this verse, the end of verse 23, um, or in verse 23. Not, yeah, he gives him a little bit of, of leeway, a little bit of flexibility. And I think what Paul is trying to show Timothy is, listen, don't get so legalistic. Don't get so rule oriented. And we'll see what that looks like. So in verse 22, Paul says, 
to Timothy. Do not be hasty in, in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. So there are four commands here. Three are about laying on of hands, and the last one's about wine. So the context, still eldership, and the following verses, 24 through 25, next week's text, is also about eldership. But beyond just eldership, Paul's establishing a greater and more foundational principle of the believer's responsibility to recognize authority and to submit to that authority. That's the larger principle that Paul's established. And he's done that all throughout this letter. There are, God establishes a hierarchy in the church and in reality and in the world and in life. And it's a reflection of his own hierarchy. As, as Noah was just telling us about the Trinitarian God. We have one God who is in three persons, three distinct persons in one God. Father, Son, and Spirit. 1 Corinthians 11 tells us that the Father rules, the Son submits to the Father, and then the husband submits to, the, to Christ, and the wife submits to her husband, and children submit to their parents. And so there's this hierarchy, this role, and, 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 it, and God gives us that in the church because it reflects his very nature. And so it's important that it, depending on what your role is, you fill that appropriately. If you're in a role of leadership and authority, that you fulfill that appropriately, being righteous and holy. If you're in a role of submission, you fulfill that appropriately by submitting to the God-given authorities that he's placed over you in righteousness and holiness and obedience. Okay? And since submission is a command in such high regard in Scripture, those who are placed into those positions of authority must live up to a standard of holiness that is irreproachable. So this is a way to protect the very people who are told, submit to these men called elders. That's what we're, we're commanded over and over again. In chapter 2, it's all about roles and authority and genders and who does what and where and when and how. And so with this authority and submission, Paul's like, it's important that the people who are not elders submit to their elders. Now, if you're a part of the church and you hear that, you're like, okay, well, that makes sense. But what if the elder isn't holy? Am I still have to submit to him? And Paul's response to that, and we've addressed that in the past, but in this text, Paul's response is, well, don't let them be an elder then. That's really what he's getting at. He's establishing this idea that if these men are going to lead and the people have to submit to them, those men have to be holy. They have to be righteous. They have to be godly. They have to be obedient. They're not going to be perfect. We know that. But they need to be men who are irreproachable. And that is why after teaching in verses 17 through 19 that elders should be honored, Paul then establishes in verses 20 through 22 that the same elders who expect to be honored are required to live up to a high standard of holiness Essentially, with expected honor comes expected responsibility. If the, honor, if the elders expect to be honored, which Paul says in verse 17, let those who rule well be considered worthy of double honor. If that's your expectation to become an elder and then be honored, well, there's a responsibility that comes with that honor and that respect that is due to you. And that responsibility is righteousness. And so what Paul is getting at with Timothy is it is a very stingy, very strict and very tight qualification process to bring a man into eldership. 
You can't live unholy as an elder and then demand honor and respect from people who are told to submit to you. Because if those people are obedient, they'll submit to you anyways. And it's the elder's responsibility to live a life that is worthy of that submission. And that submission that is given to that elder, if he's a righteous and holy and godly man, he will recognize it is not to him that submission is given. It is to Christ because that's who he represents. He is an under shepherd of the great shepherd of the sheep, Jesus. So elders are just playing a role. They themselves are the sheep. And Christ is the shepherd. And they are playing a role as they are installed by God where they are under shepherds acting like Christ to lead the church on his behalf in, in his stead or in his place until he returns. And because God has established that role and that importance for the church, uh, the congregation has to abide by that and follow those leaders. And so what Paul's hammering home in this text is those leaders better be good. If you expect people to follow them. So Paul continues to clarify some of the requirements for Timothy as he considers who is qualified for eldership. And he tells Timothy, do not be hasty in the laying on of hands. So the, the installation of an elder to become an elder, they would have these ceremonies. So they would perform the ceremony in the early church where the people would gather and the elders would lay hands on the new incoming elder. And they would install him into the role of shepherd or elder with, with prayer and agreement among the congregation. We still do this today. It's how we do eldership here at the church. The elders at Grace Church, we, uh, the elders would... Uh, bring a recommendation for a new elder to the congregation and we would have a process where we all agree on that elder and that man becoming an elder and then we would have a brief if you want to call it ceremony where the current elders would lay hands on this man and install him into eldership it's rather simple nothing too formal but it's a process that is biblical and it's important that we do it And this ceremony was a spinoff of the Old Testament command from God to lay hands on the sin sacrifice in the Old Testament law. In Exodus 29.10, God is talking to Moses and he's giving Moses the very law, the Old Testament law. He's giving Moses the very law that will expose Israel's sin for the next 3,000 years until Christ comes and fulfills the requirement of the law, freeing us from its burden and releasing us into the righteousness of Christ that he earned in our place. So in Exodus 29, verses 10 through 11, God tells Moses this. So just understand, they don't have any system. They don't know sacrifices and rules for sacrifice. The sacrifices existed. They were doing those things, but they didn't have rules. They didn't have laws. There wasn't clarification from God for his people how to do all these things in a particular way. And what God is doing right now in Exodus 29 is he's meeting with Moses on Mount Sinai. The people are at the bottom of the mountain sinning against God because they're riling, they they want to be like the other nations and they're gathering up as much gold as they can so they can build this golden calf because they think if they have a golden calf, they can, they want to worship God, but they want to worship God through this image, this idol, which while they're doing that, God is talking to Moses on the top of the mountain saying, have no other idols, (laughs) have no idols, worship me alone. The people are down there making an idol. And Moses gets so upset, he comes down from the mountain, throws the tablets on the ground, they break, and God's like, all right, Moses, come back up, get new tablets, we'll do this again, I'll write it on the tablets with my finger, and he gives Moses all these new laws. And one of the laws is a very important law, because this law is about the gospel. 
And I think that the entirety of the law is about the gospel, but this one is very clearly gospel-oriented. And the law that he gives them is the law uh, for the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is Passover, which is when God helped Israel escape out of Egypt and he passed over their sins and he established that's that's that same time of the year in the month of Abib, which is when I took you up out of Egypt. You're going to have this Passover ceremony, the, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and it's going to be a sin. You're going to have a sin offering for it. And in that sin offering, you're going to do particular actions. And who's going to do those particular actions matters. It's going to be Aaron and his sons. Not just Aaron specifically, but from Aaron. Aaron is a priest. He's a Levite. And so from the Levites, will, the Levites will be or are the priests of Israel. And so from the Levitical line will be, so, so when he says Aaron, he's not saying just Aaron, he's saying Aaron's lineage. So whoever the priest of Israel is in the future, in this case, in Exodus 29, it's Aaron. God says, this is how you're going to perform. And I'm leaving a ton of details out about these laws, but this is how you're going to perform this ceremony, this sacrifice that is a sacrifice for the sins of the people. And he says in 29, 10 through 11 to Moses, you shall bring the bull before the tent of meeting. Aaron and his sons shall lay their hands on the head of the bull. So there's the laying on of hands. Aaron and his sons shall lay their hands on the head of the bull. Then you shall kill the bull before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And then there's other clarifications and other texts about what's, you know, what to do with the blood and what to do with the body parts and what's burned and what's not burned and what's tossed out and what's kept and how the blood is used and where it's sprinkled. And there's a lot of details I'm leaving out. And that's not important. The important, the important point here is that this Old Testament ceremony reveals something greater. It was a ceremony that was so common that in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 2, it is called elementary teaching. So the purpose of the ceremony was for the priest who represents the entirety of God's people when they are making a sacrifice. So that's important. Okay, as Aaron stands there and he puts his head on the bull before they sacrifice the bull, Aaron represents all of Israel. So when Aaron puts his hand on the bull, that's the entire nation of Israel putting their hand on the bull. That's what it represents. And the act of putting their hand on the bull or on the animal was a way for them to physically express that they admit that this bull is their sacrifice. It's their way of saying, I should be sacrificed. I should be killed like the bull. I deserve to be killed slaughtered for my wickedness and I recognize and admit my sinfulness and I am expressing by laying my hands on this bull, I'm expressing my gratitude to God and my recognition to God that he has supplied a substitute, that he has supplied a sacrifice in my place, that this bull is going to die for my sins. And Israel would have to perform these ceremonies over and over and over again. So this was meant to establish a relationship between the sinner and the substitute. The sinner and the animal. The animal is the substitute. It's going to be sacrificed on your behalf. 
And when you lay hands on that bull, when Aaron would lay hands on the bull, that means all of Israel is laying their hands on that bull. And they are all recognizing there is a unique and distinct relationship between us, the sinners, and the, the, the animal that is being sacrificed in our place. But this sacrifice is an animal. How are we supposed to relate to an animal? What's the relationship between us and an animal? It's just an animal. Well, God is establishing a practice that will one day have much more meaning when Christ comes and becomes our sacrificial lamb. And when he pays for our sins once and for all. So that's the huge distinction here is that when Christ shows up, he doesn't have to be sacrificed annually for the sins of his people. Hebrews tells us several places in chapter 7 and chapter 10 that Christ died once and for all. Once, one time and only one time. And in fact, in Hebrews chapter 6, he says he can only die one time. He can't be sacrificed again because his sacrifice is sufficient for the sins of all of God's chosen people. His, his sacrifice and his death is sufficient for the sins of every human alive who has ever lived, sufficient for it all and applied by faith. And that's where the laying out of hands becomes so important with the bull is because that establishment of relationship between the sinner and the animal or the substitute, it's meant to show in the Old Testament, what is going to be a reality in the new covenant in Christ, that there has to be a relationship between the sacrificial lamb, Jesus Christ, and the sinner for whom he is being sacrificed. So the laying out of hands is a picture of faith because our relationship with Jesus is dependent on faith. You have no relationship with Christ apart from faith. Faith is the connector between us and Christ. It is the avenue that God has paid for us to be related to Christ, to know Christ, to have a relationship with Christ. And so the laying out of hands with the bull in the Old Testament is imagery of the new covenant reality that we have a relationship with the sacrifice Jesus through faith in him. There has to be a relationship with the substitute. Or there can be no sacrifice. Therefore, it is vital that Timothy ensures that this practice of laying on of hands upholds the magnificence of the gospel by ensuring that the right men are called into the service of the gospel so that they can properly uphold it and live it. So Paul's giving Timothy warnings. Don't be flimsy. Don't be hasty. Don't be nonchalant about laying on hands. Don't just go laying hands on anybody. The gospel which is revealed in the laying on of hands of bulls in the Old Testament, is now fulfilled in Christ. And now as we lay hands on men who are commissioned by God to fulfill the gospel ministry to the church, it is vital that that very ceremony itself and that act of laying on hands is, represents the gospel well, which means we need holy and godly men to whom we can lay hands on so that they are commissioned to appropriately fulfill their ministry of the gospel to the church. And since the congregation was required to trust the elders to make that right decision about the man becoming elder, Paul warns Timothy not to rush into the decision by not being hasty. Because pastors and elders need to be sure that the man who they call, that they are installing for eldership, is qualified because the honor that is due to him and expected from the congregation needs to be worthy of his manner of living. That he be holy and righteous and just and wise. And then he meets all the requirements of chapter 3 verses 1 through 7. 
So again, the context is eldership. This isn't about just, you know, Paul's not just telling Timothy, hey, don't just go run around laying hands on anybody. He's saying, whoa, don't go, lay, don't go run around laying hands on any man who isn't qualified to be an elder. Take the requirements seriously. Filter these men properly. Take time, if needed, to ensure that the right men fill these roles. In verse 22, Paul tells Timothy, nor take part in the sin of others. Again, context is eldership. He's not just generally speaking about, hey, don't go doing the sins that other people are doing in general. He's saying, don't, don't take part in the sins of men who are commissioned to eld. Don't commission men for eldership who are not qualified for eldership. If you do, you're taking part in their sin. If Timothy is hasty in laying on hands laying hands on a man to become an elder, and that man is unqualified, then Timothy, by proxy, is taking part in that man's sin because Timothy ordained a sinful and unqualified man for the ministry of shepherd of the church. This is just another way that Paul is warning Timothy not to be hasty in laying on of hands while adding to Timothy the reality that if he does install unqualified men, he himself becomes culpable of their sin. Essentially what Paul's telling Timothy is, if you know this man isn't qualified, slow down, back up, and do not install him into eldership. If you do, you become culpable of his sins just as well. And then Paul gives Timothy the same warning again in a different way. At the end of verse 22, he says, keep yourself pure. By Timothy not taking part in the recognition of unqualified elders, he is keeping himself pure or free from sin. So this isn't about sexual purity. This is about general purity and holiness. He himself, Timothy, is alleviated from the burden of sin because he isn't installing an unqualified man. And he is also protecting the purity of the church by ensuring that only qualified men are shepherding the church. So no doubt that Paul understands the problems that would ensue if Timothy allowed unqualified men into eldership and the ways in which that would hinder the effectiveness of Timothy's ministry as well as the congregation's trust toward Timothy. So just imagine that. Timothy installs an unqualified man. Do you think Timothy's going to have problems with that man? Yeah, that dude's not qualified to lead the church. Of course he's going to have problems if he's leading the church and he's not qualified to do it and he's doing it with other men who are qualified. There's going to be some Headbutting there. There's going to be some division that ensues. And then when, that, when those problems arise out of the wrong man being in the wrong role, what do you think is going to happen to the congregation? They're going to look at the existing elders and go, can we even trust these men? They're installing unqualified men to lead us. Who can we trust now? And it creates confusion and chaos and disorder and division in the church. I can tell you from personal experience, I have been in eldership at churches with men who are not qualified to be elders. It is chaos. It is, as a pastor, so just let you into the life of a pastor a little bit. As a pastor, you're going to have problems. Why? Because you lead people. And guess what people have? Problems. You all know it. You have problems. You're like, yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. I could identify 10 of my very own problems. And those problems, that's part of life. That's part of my role is to help you navigate those problems, to lead you to Christ, to lead you in the word, to love you, to shepherd you, to care for you, to pray for you, to be with you, to, to give you guidance, um, just to be, even be a listening ear. Whatever it takes 
to help you navigate and manage those problems, to help you fight and battle against sin, to make war with your sin, to love righteousness, to learn, to grow, to be discipled, to be sanctified out of sin and into righteousness. All that stuff is part of the ministry, and that's acceptable. And the men who are elders, you know, they're not perfect. They got their problems too. But if these men don't fit the qualifications it's described in Scripture, you're going to have problems. And I'm not talking about the problems like you have problems and you come to your pastor with those problems and your pastor goes, well, let me love you and care for you and help you and lead you and guide you and direct you and pray with you or whatever. That's acceptable. And even if an elder himself is having problems and comes to me or to another elder and says, hey, I'm having this struggle. Can you help me work through it? That's one thing. But these unqualified elders are going to have bigger and different and more distinct and noticeable problems because they don't qualify Meaning that their, their problems are problems that make, that put them out of order. And when God's order is out of order, it creates chaos. And I've seen this happen a ton of times in churches. I've been a part of it. That men who are not qualified, according to 1 Timothy, installed into the role of eldership. And it creates so many problems in the eldership. If you have problems and you come to me with those problems, I go, this is why I exist. This is why God created me, to be a part of the church in this way, to love you and help you through those problems. So if you got problems, come to me. I'm here for you, period. And if an elder had problems, I'd tell him the same thing. But when you've got unqualified men leading the church, what happens is those problems become, what I would say, feel insurmountable. They're overwhelmingly huge. They are so burdensome. Because the people or the person that the elders are having a problem with is an elder himself. He himself is a man of authority given to him by God and installed by the congregation and the elders. And now can wield that authority with the sin that he is living in. And the problems it creates is like, uh, it's like an aneurysm. It's like embedded deep in your brain in the, in the functioning center of the of the church, the principal governing authority of the church, which is the eldership of the church, now has like a, a, a virus in it. And it could blow at any second. And when it does, it blows up leadership. And when leadership blows up, the church has problems. And that, those problems are, are like a shadow, like an overcast over the church that keeps the sun out and creates gloom over the congregation so having problems in the church, that's to be expected. Having problems in leadership, Paul's saying that's to be avoided. And I can just tell you from personal experience that having these men in this role when they're not qualified for it is the hardest problem to have. I've had hundreds upon, actually thousands of people not like me. I can live with that. I can live with that. I can live with me living by a conviction, having a conviction that someone else disagrees with, trying to serve someone in their problem and trying to help them along and they disagree with me and they want to part ways with me. That I'm fine with. And I can part ways with that person say, I still love you. Go do your thing. That's fine. If you ever need me, I'm here. Okay? And if you really hate me for some reason, that's between you and God. I'm willing to reconcile. I, I can live with that reality. But if Brian came to me and said, I hate you, I'd be like, uh-oh, <laughs> we got a problem. <laughs> like, 
that's not okay. And so if that happens in the eldership, now all of a sudden the very men who are leading the church are, are hindered in that one area where they have all this freedom and luxury to express what's going on in their hearts and minds and in the church as they lead the church. Because now that safe place called eldership for the other elders is, is tainted by evil. And sin and a corrupt man, and maybe corrupt might be too extreme to call him maybe evil and corrupt, but he's not qualified. And I could go on and on with a bunch of different examples and expressions of that, of how that hurts the church and hurts the leadership. But it is, just speaking from personal experience, the most burdensome problem to have because it affects everything you do. You come to me with your problem, you're like, oh, Pastor Mark, I just really struggle with this. And I'm going, man, I really wish I could care and have compassion for your problem. But I'm so unbelievably burdened by the fact that I don't even have support in the very group of men who I'm supposed to be leaning on for these very problems. So it just it pulls the church's leadership's mind away from the people and into the very problem. So Paul knows all of this. Paul sees all of this. And, and I know he sees it because this happens when he, and this is why he's telling Timothy, keep yourself pure by not installing these men. Keep yourself pure by not participating in their sin, by bringing those men into leadership. And, and Paul knows this is going to happen because what's interesting about this text is that in Acts chapter 20, verse 30, Paul calls the Ephesian elders to come join him. And I think the town is Miletus, which is near Ephesus. And those, same, these, those are the same elders that Paul is writing this letter to. He's writing this letter to Timothy. Timothy's an elder, a pastor at the church in Ephesus. And the elders of the church in Ephesus are going to read this letter. So this, is about, this letter is mostly about the very men that Paul met with six years earlier. So six years earlier, Paul meets with them. And then six years later... He writes this letter. So six years before he writes this letter, this is what Paul says to the Ephesian elders. In verse 29, he says, watch out, there's going to be a lot of people who are going to bring, bring problems into your church. And then in verse 30, he says this. He's talking to the elders. So this is about the elders. From among your own selves will, rise, will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Paul knows. He said this six years before he wrote these qualifications. He knows what's going to happen in the Ephesian church. And so there's no doubt that what Paul is doing is kind of mitigating the problem, managing the problem, and ensuring that Timothy doesn't let the wrong men step into the church. Because if you let unqualified men fill this role, you're going to have these kinds of problems where they're going to speak twisted things. This is why when I consider just me personally and my biblical conviction as an elder in this church is when I look at who's qualified for eldership, my number one, number one thought is, are they doctrinally sound? Right? Their life of holiness, their righteousness, all the other qualifications, are they gentle? Are they, um, are they able to teach? Are they not a drunkard? Are they not violent? Are they not quarrelsome? Are they not a lover of money? Are they sober-minded? All those things. Are they husband and one wife? Those things are important, and I obviously think through those. But my first gateway, my first filter is, are they doctrinally sound? Because if I bring in a man to bring, be an elder in the church with me, and we are not doctrinally in sync, we're going to have problems. Even if I love that man and that man loves me, even if that man is a godly man who lives his life in righteousness, still, 
we have to have all fronts of eldership managed or, or evaluated before those men can fill the role. Because think about the, the chaos or the problem it would produce if you've got one elder preaching one truth and a different elder preaching a different truth at different times. It's going to be divisive. Even totally unintentional, it can still be divisive. So it is very important that Paul commands Timothy to be careful. And so now Paul's made some pretty tight guidelines. And with such strictness about eldership, Paul, I think, is worried for Timothy that he might become somewhat legalistic in his thinking about ministry. Having to abide by all these strict qualifications for church regarding elders and widows and submission and respect and gender roles and as well as Timothy's requirement to teach sound doctrine and to filter doctrine. And it may feel to Timothy as if he's kind of being like boxed in. Man, Paul, just writing this letter, has got all these rules for me and it's, it's restricting my freedom to live by the Spirit's guiding. And so, so I think what Paul does is, is he, he kind of gives Timothy this little command. It's another rule, but it's a, it's a rule of freedom. And he says to Timothy in verse 23, no longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. Paul's not giving, he's not giving all of us a command that we should drink alcohol instead of water. Okay? You need water. Nor is Paul making a general allowance for everyone to drink alcohol. Obviously, there is some room given here for every believer to drink alcohol legally because it wouldn't make sense that Timothy, a pastor and an elder, is allowed to drink and the rest of the congregation is restricted from drinking since the elder is to be an example to the flock. So if the elder can have a drink, then the people can have a drink. And so what Paul is doing is saying, Timothy, go ahead and have a drink. It's okay. You don't have to be so legalistic. And he's not calling Timothy legalistic. He's freeing Timothy from the tension or the opportunity or maybe the possibility that he might start getting a little too strict and a little too legalistic and say, no, Paul said we have to follow this rule. And Paul's like, dude, chill, have a drink. <laughs> you know, like, and, and, and just, you, because what Timothy sees in Paul is a, is a, a, very strong conviction to be obedient to Christ. And what Paul's bringing into the mix here is that, hey, some things aren't a matter of command and not no, being commanded or not being commanded. Some things are just a matter of you managing the reality of life by the power of the Holy Spirit to kind of determine what's right for you and what's wrong for you. Some things in Scripture just aren't clarified. So we got to put this in context. Water in the first century, not the same kind of water you have coming out of the faucet at your home today. Okay, it was, it was polluted and it carried many diseases. And so Paul tells Timothy, do not drink the water when you're sick. It's not helping you. The water is making it worse because the water is polluted. So instead of drinking water, drink wine when you're not feeling well. Why? Because wine is fermented and the fermentation process disinfects the water that's in the wine, making it much safer to drink when you're sick and allowing your body to recover quicker instead of slowing it down by introducing new diseases through their polluted water. So that's kind of a pragmatic reason why Paul is saying this, but there is a more spiritually foundational reason. Paul doesn't want Timothy to spread legalism. Paul knows. Timothy knows Paul. Okay, Timothy's half Jew, half Greek. Okay, he's kind of playing both sides. That's kind of a unique thing. And, 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 
And one, in certain circumstances, Paul is strict to the law. And then in other circumstances, Paul is loose, kind of carefree in terms of rules. Because some things aren't clarified in Scripture. And in those things that are not clarified, we need to operate in wisdom and by the Holy Spirit because we don't have biblical clarity on those things. And I think what Paul's doing is giving Timothy kind of that flexibility. He's saying you don't have to avoid alcohol for the sake of holy irreproachability. It's okay to drink wine when your stomach hurts. It's not a sin. You have freedom in Christ to do so just as long as you're, you know, your drinking doesn't lead to sin like drunkenness or whatever. But you're free to do that. The Pharisees, who were Paul's major opponent in much of his ministry, were so legally strict with the law that they actually sinned more in their attempts to be obedient in their strictness. Paul is giving Timothy that freedom to avoid that strictness. Yes, follow my rules and my commands, but realize there's so much of the Christian life that isn't clarified in Scripture. There's a lot of things you can and can't do or may be able to do or may not be able to do that Bible doesn't specifically and explicitly and clearly direct us on how to live. So he's giving Timothy that freedom, and it's to prevent the church from becoming just another pharisaical legalism that is based on stingy adherence to rules and law. Because the more rules that Paul gives Timothy, the more Timothy's going to be like, all right, we're ru-, and he's going to, we got to follow these rules, and he's going to, you know, post the, the hundred rules from Paul on the church and someone's home where they meet for worship. We all got to do all these rules and make sure you follow these rules. And all of a sudden people aren't living in the freedom and spirit of Christ just following all these rules. And now we're talking in the context of elderships. How important is it that elders understand the balance between obedience to God's word and all of his commands as well as freedom in the spirit to operate by the spirit with the mind of Christ in righteousness Avoiding sin in the areas where we don't know if it's sin or not. And being righteous in the areas where we don't have clarity in Scripture on. It's important that the right men are filling those roles. If you, if you, engage, if you have a, a problem in your life or situation or question or concern and you're not sure what to do and you're like, the Bible doesn't give me a direct answer on what decision to make in my life. And you go to an elder and say, hey, elder, you're my elder. I'm supposed to come to you with this question. I've got this situation. I don't know what to do. What should I do? What decision should I make? Is it sin if I do this? Is it righteousness if I do this? And that elder needs to have the same kind of mentality that Paul is trying to give to Timothy, which is how do we navigate the gray areas? How do we navigate the unknowns? How do, we, how do we decide what's righteous and what's not righteous? Is it a matter of rules? Does is, is scripture give us a command? Are there, is there no command on this issue? What biblical principles then do we take from scripture and apply to this situation? You need godly men who understand that, are experienced in that process, have grown and matured into Christ's likeness, know the word of God, can immediately withdraw principles from God's word and apply it to your situation. You need that. So it's important that you have the right men leading your church. So what does this mean to us? Well, there's kind of two ideas that Paul's projecting, kind of two attitudes. One is like this strict guidelines and the other is like this spiritual freedom, man. You know, it's like, Paul, pick one, man. Like, like are we going to be strictly following these rules or, or, or do we have all this like freedom? And Paul's like, well, it depends on what the situation is. 
So Paul's not opposing himself. If he was, God would be opposing himself. What we see here is one of the most debated ideas in the church. What's allowed and what's not allowed? What can we do and what can't we do? Where God is explicitly clear, our requirements to obey his command is solidified. Let me give you an example. Ephesians 5.17 says, do not be foolish. Okay. If you're foolish, you disobeyed this command, it's sin. Clean and cut. Okay. Do not get drunk. You get drunk, it's sin. Do not lie. You lie, it's sin. Do not murder. You murder, it's sin. Do not worship a false idol. You worship a false idol, sin. Clear. There's no debate. So the problem, though, is that there are many things in the Christian life that we encounter daily that are not explicitly clear in Scripture. And in those situations, we need the Holy Spirit to guide us and direct us with the mind of Christ so that we do not sin in those areas that aren't clarified for us in Scripture. Let me give you an example for one of those unknown areas. Tuesday is Halloween. Is it sin to dress up in a costume and do trick-or-treat for candy in your neighborhood? Is celebrating or doing Halloween sin? Is it okay? Is it not okay? There's a lot of churches that are like, whatever, man, we don't care. Do whatever you want. And there's a lot of churches that are like, we do not celebrate Halloween because it's evil. And so it's like you've got two camps And some of those people, usually the ones who are very strict on no Halloween, uh, make this like a matter of righteousness. As if God has a command in the Bible that says, thou shalt not celebrate Halloween. It's not in there. We're not told. We're told to avoid evil. And some people would argue, well, Halloween's evil. And some Christians would argue, no, it's not. It's evil if you make it evil. Well, it comes from evil roots. It has evil imagery behind it. It has evil intentions behind it. Well, everything in the world is permeating from evil. If you're not going to celebrate Halloween because of that, then you also cannot use Facebook or Google or go to Starbucks or Target. And I could go on and on with a list of things or Walmart that you depend on to live. And you certainly can't use Amazon because all of those companies openly... Admit to supporting things that this Bible explicitly calls sin. So you, no more Amazon, no more Google, no more Starbucks. So how do we figure that stuff out? The reality is Scripture just doesn't give us an answer. And the only answer it really gives us is We have to navigate these things by the power of the Spirit. There are, you know, the Bible teaches us that for one man, a one thing could be sin, and for another man, that very same thing could not be sin. And that thing has to be a thing that Scripture doesn't explicitly call sin. If Scripture doesn't explicitly call it sin, maybe for one man, it's a conviction, I can't do this, and for another man, it's a conviction, I can do this. Okay? Wine, for example, since that's the context here. Is it okay to drink alcohol? Well, Paul's saying it's obviously the the act of drinking alcohol itself is not inherently sinful. Jesus himself turned water into wine. Would he do that at a wedding knowing people are going to drink it if he thought that the drinking of alcohol was sin? No. But does Jesus know that drunkenness is sin? Yes. 
So alcohol itself isn't the problem. And that's what Paul's getting at. So for one man, having a drink, not a big deal. Not sin. I have a conviction. This, this guy could be thinking, I have a conviction. I don't mind having a drink. And it doesn't bother me at all. It doesn't affect my spiritual well-being. It doesn't make me feel like I'm sinning at all like that. And I, and I feel I got the freedom in Christ to do so. And another man could be thinking, I feel and believe that the Spirit has convicted me to not drink alcohol for whatever reason. And both of those men are free to have those convictions. And both of those men are free to operate in those convictions. As long as they don't cast those convictions on another person and say, you're in sin because you're not living by my conviction that isn't clarified in Scripture. Now that's sin. So let's be careful not to put our personal convictions that God has placed on our heart onto others unless that is a clear command from the Bible. Now, the application here is that there are many unknowns in the Bible and we face those unknowns. We must be Spirit-filled so that we are Spirit-led. Now, I don't want to convey that the Bible doesn't have enough instruction for us to live holy. That's not what Paul's teaching or what I'm teaching, that, oh, the Bible just doesn't tell us enough. The Bible tells us plenty. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, Peter says, we, his divine power, his divine power is granted to us all things, all things that pertain to life and godliness. So there is enough information in Scripture for us to navigate all situations. It's just a matter of being spirit-led with the mind of Christ to properly apply biblical principles at the right time and in the right way. Today, we have clean water. This requirement to drink wine over water for your frequent ailments isn't as applicable Right? It's just not, because you have clean water. However, uh, my wife told me, like, this year, she's like, and I, don't even, I don't even know if it's true, I didn't, like, fact check this, but, like, you know, drinking wine or grape juice even, like, is good for your stomach. If the flu's going around, you should drink that, and it helps. I don't even know if that works or not. That could just be, like, a wives' tale or whatever. I don't know. But it wouldn't surprise me if it worked. It really wouldn't, because alcohol tends to destroy things. So, so like... Maybe, you know, Paul's thinking, actually, it's not just about the polluted water. It's the fact that wine actually helps your stomach. You know, the, maybe there's a, a good reason. And, and for that, you, you feel a conviction to have wine when you're not feeling well or whatever. And maybe someone else just goes, no, it's just my job to kind of suck it up and get over it and suffer. And I think that's what Paul's telling Timothy. Dude, you don't have to pointlessly suffer in the name of righteousness and call it righteousness like, oh, I'm sick and I, I can't drink wine because I'm so holy and I follow all God's rules. I'm just going to suffer with this polluted water and be sick because I'm so righteous and I won't drink wine. Paul's like, that's stupid. Don't do that. Have the wine, dude. Grow up. Get over it. Drink your wine. You'll be fine. And I don't think Timothy's arguing with Paul at all. And I think what Paul's getting at is, dude, if you act like that, you're going to have your people dying from illnesses because they won't go to the doctor. That's stupid. Don't do that. Be wise. Navigate the world. Yeah, the scripture doesn't say explicitly when you, when you get a cut on your arm, make sure you go to the doctor and get stitches. And, and, or, or if you get hurt, don't go to the doctor because the spirit will heal you. Like That's not in scripture. 
So what do we do? We use our brains that God gave us and we navigate it by the power of the Spirit to make wise decisions. And, we, and, and to live according to our convictions, the convictions that the Spirit himself has placed on our hearts that he gives us as we mature and grow in Christ. So wisdom is required as we navigate this Christian life. And that wisdom comes from the Spirit. Only the Spirit can give us wisdom. Therefore, here's our command. This is how we operate. This is what we need to do. And I've said this 10 billion times at this pulpit. We must be Spirit-filled. There's a difference between the indwelling of the Spirit and the filling of the Spirit. All believers are indwelt with the Spirit and will forever be indwelt with the Spirit and are sealed by the promise of the Holy Spirit for eternity. But then Paul tells us to actually engage in the filling of the Spirit. We see it in Christ's life. It's exampled in Jesus' life. That's why he retreats to be with the Father, to get filled with the Spirit. Because when he does ministry, he can feel the Spirit pouring out of him as the Spirit does work through Christ. So we also are the same way. I mean, I'm preaching right now. I'm pouring the Holy Spirit, I hope, the Holy Spirit out onto you. He's working, I hope, he's working. And as he's working, I'm getting drained. How do you think I feel after preaching? Pretty exhausted. <laughs> Christians in the back like, thumbs up. I, I mean, I feel great about it, but, but I'm exhausted. And I think about the way Jesus lived his life, day after day after day after day, without end, just serving, giving, praying, healing, casting out demons, preaching, teaching, leading, guiding, fighting, arguing, running, debating. I mean, it just never ends for him. It's just constant. He's always going. How tired he must be. How exhausted it must have been for him to carry that cross. He needed the Spirit to fill him, which is why he constantly went away to engage with his father and the father would pour his love into his son and that love is the spirit of God. We need to commune with God in his word and in prayer so that the spirit will always be filling us with his love, which is the spirit of Christ filling us up so to produce in us the mind of Christ that enables us to apply scripture and the principles of scripture to every situation and enables us to choose wisely, to glorify God, to honor the gospel, to magnify Christ and to satisfy our souls through obedience to his word, even in the freedom we have in Christ. It's not easy to do, but it's mandatory. And you won't figure it out in this life. So our aim isn't to get to this perfect place of having it all worked out. Our aim is to depend on trusting God, which we do when we're filled with the Spirit. And we get filled with the Spirit when we commune with God. So the question really is not about what are your decisions about Halloween or drinking wine or things like that? The question really is, do you commune with God? Because if you don't, you won't have convictions about those things. And if you want convictions and clarity on how to operate in the gray areas of the Christian life, you need to commune with God. Let's do that now. Father, we love you and we thank you for your word. And we cannot begin really to even express the appreciation we have to you for saving us, for making us yours, for sanctifying us, for working in us, for then giving us directions and clarity. And then not only clarity and commands from your word, but then also godly men you install in our churches to help us and to lead us and guide us and helpful and encouraging spirit-led and gifted friends and family around us to help us learn and grow and be sanctified and you not only saved us, but you've created a way for us to live our life in a way that honors you, to be satisfied in you by putting these people in our lives. And so 
We trust not only in you, but we trust you in that you've given us the right people to help us navigate this life. And God, there's a lot of unknowns that we encounter and we're just not sure what to do. And we need your word to to give us the principles in making those decisions. And we're not gonna know those things unless we're in your word. So create in us a desire and a, and an and obedience to be in your word, to commune with you, to pray, that you would fill us with the mind of Christ, the mind of Christ that makes the right decisions, decisions that honor you. Strengthen our convictions if they are righteous. Destroy bad convictions if they're not righteous. Install in us sound doctrine and clarity of information so that we can follow you in a way that brings you glory, in a way that satisfies our hearts and our lives in you. Only you can do that work. And our church, your church, needs it. So we ask of you to do it. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.